Welcome, and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Uh, it is such a great day to see you guys and such a great weekend to be a part of this. Can I just tell you, like, I think my favorite part of the weekend is, is right before we start the teaching. And I personally just take a second to just sit down and listen to God's body sing him praises. And that was just unique and sweet right there. And I, it, is, it is just my joy to be able to say, like, I get to be family members with you guys as you guys lift up a praise and worship to our Heavenly Father. Uh, it's really, really cool. And if you don't know me, and you're like, I, don't know, I didn't know I welcomed you into my family. My name is Daniel Smith, uh, and I have the privilege of being the family and student ministry director here. And what that means is that I get to, hey, how's it going? That I get to do a lot of fun things with our students and with our families. One of the fun things that we got to do was last weekend, our students got to have a little thing called City Limits. Yeah, there we go. We love it. That weekend is a weekend where we invite our students and their friends from all over Collin County to come here and have fun and hear the gospel and perhaps be transformed by the gospel uh, and, help, and perhaps invite their friends to be transformed by the gospel. And the thing that I can just say to you guys, and I can't say it enough, is thank you. Thank you for the way that you sponsored students. Thank you for the way that you served. You gave your time, talents, and treasure to provide an opportunity for our students to come and hear the gospel. My favorite quote from the weekend was this from a sixth grade girl. We had kind of all weekend tracked through the good life and the false narrative that the world offers us about the good life and the false narrative that self-righteousness offers us about the good life and how the true good life is one found in following Christ and glorifying him. And we said, this is how God responds to you in love and grace. How will you respond to him? And when a small group leader asked a sixth grade girl that same question, the sixth grade girl said it this way. I'm gonna read it so I don't mess it up. The sixth grade girl said this. I guess the only response I can have is to give my entire life to him. Church family, that's worth celebrating right there. I'm just gonna be serious with you. Like, yes, a student looking at, yeah. A student looking at this and saying, I'm gonna give him my entire life if somebody loves me that much, is just incredible. And so what I'd love to do is just thank God for that weekend, thank God for you, and then ask God to move during this time as we open his word together. So if you wouldn't mind praying with me one more time. Dear Grace Holy Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you because you're good and we can trust you. God, I thank you for the way that you continue to remind us that we can trust you in the way that you move and act in our lives and call us to dependence on you. God, during this time, would you move in our hearts and our minds? Would you open our ears to hear truth? Would you open our minds to understand it? And would you soften our hearts to be conformed by it, that we might glorify you in all that we say and do? Lord, we love you. This time is yours. We trust you with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So City Limits was a lot of fun. Uh, and the, the sling that you see on my arm right now is not from City Limits. Like we had a lot of fun, but we didn't get hurt. Or at least I didn't get hurt. And so as we look at kind of why I have this sling, 
just kind of letting you guys know, my family went on a family adventure. Some people call them family vacations. We call them family adventures because I, like, I have a problem with sitting still. I'm kind of an Enneagram 7, always on the move, always trying to do something, always trying to have fun, always looking for the next new experience. And so for our family adventure, what we did was we went to Angel Fire, New Mexico, and my sons learned how to ski. And I learned how not to fall while strapped to a snowboard. Uh, and then and not fall, and learning not to fall, ended up tearing my rotator cuff and having surgery a couple of weeks ago. And this is where I am now. Uh, but we kind of soldiered through. And that is just how I love to rest. I love to rest by doing. I love to rest by going on adventures. I love to rest by constantly moving. When I'm sitting still is when I feel anxious. When I'm going and doing is when I feel like I'm at peace. One of the things I love to go and do that gives me the most amount of rest is scuba diving. I actually have a trip kind of planned up here in the future to go scuba diving and I'm, looking, I'm like so looking forward to it. The thing about scuba diving is that before you can go, you have to get certified because bad things happen when you experiment with stuff underneath the water, right? Like we weren't made to live down there. We we're strapped to an oxygen tank. You breathe, you come up too fast, you have problems. You go down too fast, you have problems. Like you need to be trained before you go. And so what you do is you go to classes and you take classes and you take tests and they put you in a pool and you exercise and do skills in the pool. And then when they think you're ready, they take you to a large body of water that's not a pool, less controlled. And then they put you in the water like, hey, let's demonstrate these skills while we're here. The place that I did that was a little place in Oklahoma called Lake Murray. And if you've ever been to Lake Murray, one of the things you might know is it's not clear water. Like you get down in the water and you have about two and a half to three feet of visibility. You can, you can kind of make out your hand when it's right here, right? And so I, I go down and, you know, we work on clearing our goggles. We like navigate to this platform. One of the ways that we navigate through the platform is holding a string because you can't see anything. And as we're holding a string and we're swimming because you can't see anything, I almost ran into a motorcycle that was at the bottom of Lake Murray, which was just surprising and weird. Uh, I avoided the motorcycle. My father-in-law, who was behind me, did not. I was just kind of moved and then he kind of hit it. Uh, and then we ended up at the, at the platform and they sit you down on this bench. And I'm like, okay, great, I'm here. I'm doing it, I'm doing the thing. I'm already stoked because I'm breathing underwater and that's amazing. And then they start coming around and they start passing out little Vienna sausages. And I'm like, I've seen this water. I've seen a motorcycle in this water. There's no way I'm eating a snack in this water. What are we doing? I don't even like Vienna sausages. Like, why would you give me this thing? And it didn't take long before I realized, oh, they gave me this because bass then started to follow the person with the Vienna sausage bag. And these bass then would just sit in front of you and wait for you to give them a Vienna sausage. And, now, and my mind was blown. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I usually go fishing to see these guys. Now I'm underwater and I'm just like hand feeding a bass, which they're pretty aggressive. I didn't know that. Uh, and they're like just ripping the Vienna sausage out of my hand. I am on cloud nine. I'm like, this is the best trip ever. We started coming back, like following the, going past the motorcycle and everything. And we get to the shore and we're walking out of the shore. And I'm on this trip getting certified with people who have done discovery dives in Hawaii and Mexico and Jamaica and the Bahamas and like all these different places. And my first experience is underwater in Lake Murray. And I'm walking out and I'm looking at these people. I'm like, that was amazing. And they're looking at me like, you're crazy, like laughing at me. Like, are you serious? Because they had had these experiences in blue water that were like, this is like not even close, buddy. What are you doing? And then I later, because of the generosity of some friends and family, got to have my same experience in blue water, where I went and I dove 
and I got into the water of Hawaii and I started going down. I'm like dropping down this volcano and I'm seeing bright coral and I found Nemo. I didn't know what took them so long. And like, I'm like, I'm dropping down. And as I'm looking at all these different colorful fish and things like that, I was like, this is incredible. I can't believe I could have ever been satisfied with Lake Murray. And then I get to the bottom and there's this white tipped reef shark there. And then we started breaking out the Venus sauce. No, I'm just joking. We didn't, we didn't feed the sharks. Uh, but but I, I couldn't fathom the fact of what I was almost willing to settle for and what was out there in front of me. And as we go through Colossians today, I wanna submit to you guys that we often settle for the Lake Murray version of life when something more is offered to us. And the scripture that we're gonna be in, we're gonna look at, uh, we're gonna look at three different areas in life. We're gonna look at marriage, we're gonna look at parenting, and we're gonna look at work. And, and young adults and students, I know like, hey, we hear marriage and it's like, okay, I'm just gonna break out my phone and jump on Instagram or Twitter or, is it Twitter or X? I don't know which one to call it. I just, I'll go X, okay. So try to jump on X or one of those other things. And I would just tell you this. Whenever we talk about these things in church, what you should be listening for and what should you, you should be looking for is what you might be hoping for, that when you find a significant other and could get married. Like, is that gonna be something that's centered around Christ or centered around ourselves? And what frames this whole section is this. So like Colossians was written as a letter and there weren't verses and there weren't chapters and there weren't subject headings and all that kind of stuff. And so it would be read as one whole letter to the whole congregation. Um, but what's interesting is we were gonna be in Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. But Colossians 3, 17 actually kind of sets the premise of what you're gonna hear throughout scripture. It repeats a similar phrase twice almost identically, but the same idea four times throughout this passage. Throughout nine verses, this same idea is repeated, which means we should pay attention to it. And that idea is this, Colossians three seventeen says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, center that thing around Christ. And so when we look at this passage today, we're gonna to look at whatever you do in marriage, center it around Christ. Whatever you do in parenting, center it around Christ. Whatever you do in work, center it around Christ. And in that, you won't settle for the Lake Murray version of any of these things, but you'll pursue a higher bar of success and an eternal reward that culture would lull us to sleep to. Does that make sense? Okay, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read this whole thing together and then we're gonna piece it out a couple of verses by a couple of verses and walk through marriage, parenting, and work. So here we go. Starting in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to, excuse me, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as a reward. Your service, or you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And as we walk through this, I hope you guys saw it as well. There's four different times where it talks about you are serving God and what you're doing is should be for God and not for the people pleasing people around you. And so as we start to walk through this, let's look at what he talks about with marriage. Where he says this, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Whatever we do in marriage, we center it around the Lord that he might be glorified, that he might be exalted, that he might be lifted up. And so we're gonna get into the Greek a little bit. When we look at wives submit to your husbands, we look at this whole section and we're gonna see that Paul addresses the person who's most vulnerable first and then puts the weight and the pressure of change and countercultural living on the one who has the most authority in that relationship. So in Roman culture, The husband was the Lord of his home. Everything was centered around his wants, his desires, his pleasures. And so wives were basically seen as tools to accomplish those things. Wives were seen as something that provided an inheritance with children. Wives were seen as something that provided satisfaction for their pleasure. And wives were seen as someone who did the housework that he felt was beneath him. And when Paul addresses this scenario, what he's doing is he's flipping the dynamic of that on its head. And when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he uses a Greek word called hupotasso. And hupotasso, you didn't realize you were gonna need your dictionary here, did you? Hupotasso, if you were to directly translate it from Greek to English means submit. They did a pretty good job whenever they wrote it down. The, the contrast there though is in how that word is used, right? So they, there's kind of two ways that the Greeks would use hypotasso. One would be in like a military governmental setting. In a military governmental setting, hypotasso would refer to like getting uh, troops together and setting them underneath a commander for them to obey that person's command or setting up law underneath an authority governing body and people obeying what that governing body said. But when they used hypotasso in interpersonal relationships, most commonly what they would refer to as, or what it would mean, would be to voluntarily help someone carry a heavy burden. To voluntarily help someone carry a heavy burden. And so for wives, this may not exactly change the outcome of actions in their home, but it would change their heart posture in what they're doing, right? They're not submitting to their husbands out of fear of what their husband might do to them. They're not submitting to their husbands out of fear of what culturally might happen to them, but they're voluntarily saying, I wanna help you carry the burden of honoring Christ in this family. And for them, it's a shift in heart posture. How can I sacrificially live 
so that God can be glorified in this relationship. And it shifts the dynamic that Roman culture would set and kind of turns it on its head. And for women, this was a big deal. For them, it was a a way that they were like, man, I'm being seen, and also, I'm seen by a heavenly father, and I'm honoring him in the way that I honor my husband. For husbands, it was a little bit different. So he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. That statement alone would shock someone in Roman culture that day. That they, that the husband who is the Lord of his household and everything centers around him and everything circulates around him and everybody comes to him and everyone in that household is to meet my needs for him to be told, love your wife and consider her would be shocking. For us, it's like, duh, that's why you get married. You love that person. We, in our culture, Love, 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 love so much that a couple of weeks ago, you probably dropped a couple hundred dollars on cardboard cards, on flowers that are already dead, and on candies that destroyed somebody else's New Year's resolution, right? <laughs> like this is, this is how we interact when we talk about love. Like this just makes sense for us. But in Roman culture, a husband would hear that and be like, hold up, you mean this thing's not about me? And Paul is setting a different dynamic. He's saying, no, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about honoring Christ, who is your Lord and is your life. For us, we hear love and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. I think the more shocking thing for us would be to hear the the verb that he uses for love there. So again, we're going back to the Greek. He uses the word agapeo, which most of us would probably hear is like agape, You might be familiar with that if you've been around church for a while. If you haven't been around church for a while, the Greeks had several different words that they would use for love. Phileo love, which would be like, hey, my best buddy, you know? Like the the guy or girl that you call up, that y'all roll with, y'all go do mini golf with, all that kind of stuff. You send each other memes during the workday. Like that's, that's your buddy, that's your phileo pal. And that's friendship love. Eros love, which would be like erotic love which would be mostly what our culture celebrates. And then agape love. And agape love is the highest form of love that the Greeks could use. To give an idea of how that verb is used in other places in scripture, it is the love that God, or it's the word that God used to describe his love for Jesus. And it is the word that Jesus uses to describe his love for the church. It is an unwaveringly committed, self-sacrificing love. It is a love that looks to the good of someone else before the good of our own. And so husbands may be sitting in this room thinking, man, I'm killing it as a husband because I haven't had an affair. I haven't looked at pornography. I've provided a comfortable income. And I've come home and been present, kind of. But every now and then when I get stressed, I just need to escape to my man cave. And husbands, I would just tell you, that's the Lake Murray of marriage. It is. It's setting a bar for success far too low and settling for a reward that's far too temporary. 
But what if our marriages were centered around Christ? What if our marriages were centered around Christ in a way that we looked to the good of the other person so that we would lay down our needs and our wants and our desires for their spiritual flourishing and for the glory of God? What if we did that both ways? What if wives did that for husbands and husbands did that for wives? Do you see how that's countercultural today? Like most marriages today are based off of what I can get out of my spouse. Well, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you and we'll have a happy marriage because we won't talk about divorce. We'll go on dates like once a month, maybe once a week, if we've got it like that, you know. We'll have sex probably once a week because we've got a, we've got a good marriage. We'll be the envy of our friends and neighborhood because they don't know what goes on in the home when the doors are closed because we'll just be shiny, happy people. And then when we get the kids down, we'll just sit and watch Netflix until we're ready to go to bed. And we're settling for the Lake Murray version of marriage. When if we have a Christ-centered version of marriage, we have clear blue waters like Hawaii. We have a place where we can enjoy what God has given us because we're sacrificing for each other. We're, sac- we're looking to meet each other's needs before our own. And in that dynamic, there's joy. And in that, there's like a, a light of the gospel that goes into our neighborhoods and our communities and our school systems because, oh my gosh, their marriage is so different than anybody else's I've ever seen. It's almost like what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This agape love of a self-sacrificing leader with unwavering commitment looks like a savior who came to redeem a church that would participate in the mission of redeeming the world to the glory of God the Father. What if our marriage was like that? That would be something radically different. Kind of how that works out. My wife and I, when we were about to get married, we went to uh, Pastor Lewis Boyd, one of my good friends' dads. He did a lot of marriage counseling. And one of the exercises that he gave us was this. He said, hey, why don't you guys go and write down a job description? You go and write down a job description for the wife and the husband. And then Catherine, you go do the same. Write down a job description for the wife and the husband. And then come back and compare those two job descriptions together. And so we did that. We were like, okay, this is a great exercise. We're gonna go, we're gonna write down these job descriptions. And then we came back and we compared those job descriptions and we got in a fight. Uh, <laughs> it was a great exercise for us to talk about expectations. And as we got into that, one of the things that fell onto my side, and we both wrote it down, was that I would take care of any like bugs or lizards or things that intruded into the house, right? Here's what you also need to know about me. I'm a biology major. I love all living things. Uh, and so when that would happen, the argument that we would get into is this. I would try and classify said critter that got inside and sometimes that critter would get away. 
And my wife would be like, you are compromising my safety and security by letting this bug go. I'd be like, but it's a lepidoptera. And she'd go, but you need to let it out the house. You know, like this is, this is, not, this is not how this works. Uh, and it was something that we worked through. And so now I've gotten to a place where I'm like, okay, catch the bug, release the bug, classify the bug as it runs away, right? That's what we do now. And it's a much better dynamic. Where that comes into play in real life and probably the heaviest way that it came into play it was about eight years ago for us. About eight years ago for us, I was teaching and coaching. We lived in Corinth. And as we lived in Corinth, we got really rooted in our community. Our best friends lived less than a tenth of a mile from our house. We were involved in our church. So much so that Catherine was being asked into the elder room to help them write their statement of uh, women in the church and all that kind of stuff. And, and we were like rooted, rooted. And around that same time, I started wrestling with, gosh, I feel like God's calling me to vocational ministry, but I don't really know what that looks like. And so we, we sat with our community group and we laid First Timothy and Titus and my life out on the table together. And we had the frank conversation, which is like, hey, do you guys see this in my life? Is this where we should be going? And as our community group kind of wrestled with that for like six months to a year or something like that, kind of came to the same conclusion we did. Yeah, Daniel, we think this is what God's calling you to. Which was a scary moment for us. Because then what that looked like was, well, if we're gonna pursue this, then that means we're gonna move. We're gonna move away from our best friends. I got a job here and it is one of the greatest things that's ever happened. I love what I get to do here. But as we moved here, we had to break ties with a church that we had planted to. And submission was hard. It was, it was tough. We felt like we were giving up a lot. But what made it possible was the fact that early on, we said we want our marriage to be one centered around Christ and what he has for us. And we can do a lot of things if we know that this is what Christ has for us. And I wouldn't trade it. I think if Catherine were here, she'd tell you the same thing. Because with Christ at the center, there's more freedom and joy and clarity than if we're at the center. Paul continues to move on. And he says this. This is where he goes into whatever you do in parenting, centered around Christ. He says this, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, we're hitting that same frame of whatever you do, do it to honor God. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And when we look at this, it's the same idea. He starts with the vulnerable first and then he goes to the one who has the more authority and the, the weight of change is on the one who has the more authority. For children, children of that day were seen as basically whether or not you were a liability or you were uh, the opposite of a liability. I'm blanking on that word now. But basically, yeah, asset, there we go. You were a liability or an asset based on what you brought to the family and what you could do and what you could achieve and what you could accomplish. And Paul's looking at them and saying, no, no, no. Children are a blessing, not a burden. 
And for kids and students, this is probably for you. He's looking at you and he's saying, obey, not to avoid punishment, not to acquire favor, not to gain freedom or to avoid the loss of it. But your obedience is so that you would please God. And what's crazy is this. When you do that, you're a gospel light to your peers. You reflect a son who obeyed his father to the point of death on a cross, who had him rise again in three days to secure our salvation. And for some of us, that's hard. Because you have parents that don't obey or honor Christ. For some of us, it's easy because you have parents that do. But the beauty of this is you're not doing it for your parents. You're doing it for the Lord and to honor him. And so we can do a lot of things if Christ is at the center of our obedience. For dads, he puts it on, the, he puts it on you. Do not provoke your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Here's the way that we provoke our children most often, is that we see them and we parent for Lake Murray and not for the clear waters of Hawaii. We center our parenting around, are they a good person? Like, are they winning the, like, uh, the character awards at their school? If they're winning the character awards at their school, then that means they're a good kid, which means I'm a good parent, right? Or, or, or they're on the honor roll, right? They've got a 3.5 GPA, a 4.0 GPA. They're taking the AP classes. They're doing all these things. And because they're achieving here, that means I'm a good parent, right? Or they've made the varsity team. Or their tournament team wins all the tournaments. And this stack of plastic golden trophies shows that I'm a good parent. Or their first chair their first chair in their band or their opera, which means I've done something right, and therefore, I'm a good parent. We set our bar of success for certificates and plastic golden trophies that will eventually end up in folders, inside boxes, inside attics or storage units to collect dust until they end up in landfills. We set our bar for success far too low and we settle for a reward that's far too temporary. And we should be proud of them when they do these things. But what if we spent time with our kids to disciple them to be gospel lights where they go? What if we spend time with our kids to disciple them so that when they are achieving in school and in scholastics and they're, and they're making great grades, they can then rally their peers and point them towards Christ. They can be a missionary in a dark school that does not acknowledge God and pretends like he doesn't exist. What if we discipled our kids 
so that when they're in the locker room and they're achieving in sports and other kids are kind of making bad jokes and, and coarse talking and coarse language and saying things that they shouldn't say and acting in ways that they shouldn't act, our students are the ones who stand up and say, hey, what if we stopped doing that? And what if we came here in the mornings instead and consider what God's word would have us do? What if we raise students who are gifted in music to pour out worship to God as opposed to taking on the stress of am I going to be all state banned? What if we parented for eternity and not bedtime? One of the ways that provokes students the most, uh, they talk to them, they're over here, they'll agree to, is, is when you tell them to do something and then you live differently. You wanna talk about discouraging. It's when you, you coach them and you talk to them about the importance of reading God's word and then you don't. The importance of sharing your faith and then you never do. The importance of seeking forgiveness and then you get in an argument with them and you never come back and ask for their forgiveness. I use that one because that's what I have to do regularly with my sons. We'll argue about whether or not a jellyfish is longer than a blue whale. And then surprisingly, when they put the Guinness Book of World Records in my lap and prove that there is one that is, I have to come around and apologize and ask for forgiveness for the way that I talk to them. Because I'm a biologist, I know. And it's, it's one of those places where we have to model and be examples so we don't discourage and give them something to follow. And lastly, we get to whatever you do in work. So here's the hard thing, right? Some of you guys, as you're, we're gonna read this text. My version says bond servants. Some of you are reading in the NIV or reading in the NASB or the CSB or whatever, whatever version you like to read in. And this version says slaves. And for us, what we think about often when we think about slavery is we think about antebellum America, right? Like plantations and buying and trading and selling people. And for first century, uh, for first century Rome, there is that. And, the, and scripture clearly condemns that. If you jump into like Exodus 21 or Deuteronomy 23, it'll show how it condemns that type of slavery. And what Paul's doing in this verse and in these verses is he is not condoning slavery. What he's doing is he's flipping the philosophy on its head to be one that erodes the very foundation of seeing people as property to turning it into seeing people as image bearers of God. And what's wild is that as we read this, this would be read in a church service where a slave master and a slave might be sitting next to each other. So as we read it, think about it in that context. Here we go. Starting in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here we have the repeat, almost verbatim, of whatever you do, do it for the Lord. And then we have a summary of that as it talks to the master saying, you have a master in heaven. And what's true of this is true. If somebody would do this, and they would say, this is how you should work for no pay, then it is certainly true for us who are working for pay, that whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And so if you're an employee and you're going through work and you're like generating TPS reports and trying to file all those things away, you're not doing this so that your boss sees and gives you a promotion. You're not doing this for the bonus or the jam of the month club that may come at Christmas time. You're not doing this for the next opportunity or you're not doing this for the next vacation. You're not doing this for the next paycheck. You're doing this to honor God. Like what would it look like for us if we were to view our work as our mission field? How does that change the way we talk? How does that change the way we turn things in on time? How does that change the jokes that we make at the water cooler? How does that change how we use our lunch break? And maybe invite someone else in to open up God's word. How does that change the way we see our boss? Like, do we just jump in and start bad-mouthing our boss with the rest of our employees? Or do we perhaps shift that conversation to something that would honor God and call others to follow him? When we live for the bonus, the paycheck, and the vacation, we have a Lake Murray version of work. When something greater and more adventurous is in store for us. And for those of you who have people underneath you that you manage and that you coach, what if I saw that person as more than their output? What if it was more than what they produce? What if I actually took care and interest in their life in a way that calls them to follow Christ? I asked them to follow me at work and now I'm asking them to follow Christ. What if we, what if we used our relationships there to model God's grace and God's love in a world that's cold and just looks at how they can use somebody or what they can produce or what they can do for them? What if we had Christ at the center of our work. We have more clarity. We have more purpose. Our purpose is more than just gaining a paycheck, but our purpose is our actions and words and love and care that echoes into eternity through the way it changes the life of the person that we get to live beside. You have given opportunity to live for something greater. And we settle for Lake Murray. We settle for Lake Murray in the way that we, you know, at the end of the night, our marriages end with a, a, a binging of Netflix series till we get to the next Netflix series. We settle for Lake Murray in the way that parenting, we give them a device so that we can have a conversation 
We see them as, we see our kids as ways that maybe they bind our vacations or our free time instead of investments into the future. To have pastors and people that will lead the next great awakening. We settle for Lake Murray and thinking our job is just a paycheck and a means to an end. When we center our life around Christ, all of the riches and the joy that we've already talked about in Colossians come to light. They become clear. Our purpose becomes something more. Our belonging to a body of Christ and his people give us a place to call home where we could worship and make much of him. Our identity in Christ becomes clear and undebatable that we are his. Why would you settle for Lake Murray in any of these areas? Why? Because it's comfortable? Because it's easy? Because it's the standard that everybody else lives up to and so if I do it, I feel like I'm succeeding? Why would you trade that in for a life centered around Christ that reverberates into eternity and gives you actual joy? Seabridge, don't do it. Don't settle for Lake Murray. Don't allow yourself to be lulled to sleep that way. Center your life on Christ, that he might be glorified, that God would be glorified in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to the honor of Christ and God the Father. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.